Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance written by David after Nathan the prophet confronted him regarding his sin against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. David was guilty of a great many sins according to 2 Samuel 11 and 12. He sinned by staying at Jerusalem when he should have been on the battlefield. He sinned by raping Bathsheba. He sinned by deceiving Uriah, her husband. He sinned by murdering Uriah. One sin led to another sin, and another, and another, and then another. And like so many Christians, he dug himself deeper and deeper into the pit of sin until finally the Lord confronted him through Nathan the prophet. Nathan's confrontation led to David's confession of sin and repentance. 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. In response, the prophet declared in uh, 2 Samuel 12, 14, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. David experienced the reality of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 51 is David's response to his sin and God's forgiveness, as well as a pattern for how we should repent when we sin and seek God's cleansing power. Psalm 51, a psalm of repentance. Let's begin with verses 1 through 4 and see sin confessed. Sin confessed. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge." David's cry for mercy is a cry to be released from the presence and power of sin. He calls upon God in the midst of his despair because of who God is, his character. He cries out to God because of God's loving kindness, his covenant love. He cries out to God because of his compassion or motherly feeling, an arresting uh, word there. Uh, we have in those two statements uh, both a masculine and feminine characteristic uh, demonstrated by God. Uh, on one hand, he, he has love as a father. On the other hand, he has love as a mother. And so David is counting on the fullness of God's mercy, the fullness of God's love towards him to forgive him. And friends, when we come to God for forgiveness, we must come as David. We must call upon God's fatherly love, his covenant love. We must call upon God as, uh, for his motherly love, for his compassion. He prays first for his transgressions to be blotted out. Just the way the, the uh, uh, debt in a ledger is erased or blotted out. Second, he prays that his iniquities would be washed in the same way that clothes are laundered and stains are removed from clothes. So he wants his, his uh, iniquities to be washed away. And then third, he prays for his sin to be cleansed as the imperfections are smelted from precious metal. We have three nouns there, transgression, sin, iniquity, all indicating various levels of moral failure. And when we think about those three words, transgression, sin, iniquity, uh, we think of the word sin, of course, meaning to miss the mark, to miss the goal, to miss the way. And so these three terms tell us that David deviated from God's law. And 
the question then has to be asked, if, if someone deviates from God's law, what happens next? They're going to be judged. And so David knows judgment is coming, and so he prays, blot out my transgression, cleanse me or wash me from iniquity, purify me from my sin. You know, I think that we have a tendency to, rather than take responsibility, to pass the buck, to blame everyone or everything other than ourselves. David says, I did it. And that's the first step in getting forgiveness, in confessing and repenting of our sin, is to admit we did it. You know, when Nathan said, Thou art the man, you the man, David... All of a sudden, David was brought to reality and he had to acknowledge, yes. He says here, my sin is ever before me. Now look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned. Now let's not take that out of the, the wrong way. David's not saying that he didn't sin against Uriah. He's not saying that he didn't sin against Bathsheba. He's not saying that he didn't sin against the people of Israel. What he's acknowledging is the fact that Yes, all of those people we have sinned against, but ultimately, our sin is against God. And that's why we need to go to God for forgiveness. Hey, listen, if we've wronged others, then we need to go to them as well. But David understands here, the issue is bigger than just his interpersonal relationships. He's got to start with God. That's where it has to begin. Because all sin is ultimately against God, because God orders all of life. When Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, what was his response in Genesis 39? He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Listen, it would have been a sin against Potiphar's wife, it would have been a sin against Potiphar, but Joseph was more concerned first and foremost with, hey, this is a sin against God. And I think that's good for us to understand that before we sin, let's realize that we're not just sinning against one another, we're sinning ultimately against God. And so God will speak justly. God will judge purely. David makes that statement in verse 4. He understands that true justice can only be given by God. And so he falls on his face and says, Against you, you only have I sinned. We need to, we need to acknowledge the same. Then we see self-discovery in verses 5 through 6. Self-discovery. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Verse 5. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. See, when David confesses that he was brought forth, literally birthed in iniquity, he does not mean that sin uh, resides in intercourse. Okay, he's not saying that, you know, his parents had a sexual relationship and that was sin and that's why he was conceived. No, it's not what he's saying. When it says in sin my mother conceived me, it doesn't mean that he was born out of wedlock. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying us is that even at conception, he had a sin nature. From the moment conception took place, David had a sin nature, which is exactly what Scripture tells us in Romans 5. Like one man's disobedience... Uh, sin entered the world and death passed upon all men for all have sinned. Everybody at the moment they're conceived has a sin nature. Now, he says, you desire truth in the innermost being. So, 
from the human perspective in David's innermost being, he is tainted by sin, but God, you desire truth. God wants to remove the sin and put truth there. He wants the characteristic of truth to be found in us. That is, he, he desires truth to be in our innermost being, literally in our gut. He wants to infuse us with truth. He wants to remove that sin from us. And so it says, in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. And so in order to import, import truth to us, he must impart wisdom to us, to gift us with wisdom. You see, David committed sin out of foolishness. God brings him to repentance and going to give him wisdom because wisdom will keep us from sin. Jeremiah 31, 33 promises with that when the new when we take part in that new covenant, God is going to write the law, his law upon our hearts. Believers through Christ, we enjoy the blessings of the new covenant. God's law has been written on our hearts. Now we need wisdom. And 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says that Christ is our wisdom. So between God's law written on our heart, the Spirit of God indwelling us, and Christ our great high priest, no believer should have any excuse to sin. We cannot say, well, I sinned out of ignorance or I sinned out of foolishness. No, you sinned out of flat-out stupidity because you ignored the law that's written in your heart, you ignored the prompt of the Holy Spirit, and you ignored Christ. And so we all need a time of self-discovery. We all need to take a moment, sit with ourselves, and examine. Now look at verse 7 to 10. Because a sacrifice is required. Notice the sacrifice required in verses 7 to 10. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. See, David's admitted his sins. He's acknowledged the one he sinned against was ultimately God. He's gotten into the depths of his sin. He, uh, he acknowledges his utter helplessness. He throws himself on God's mercy. And he cries out for cleansing. That word purify is an intensive meaning, unsend me from uncleanness. Unsend me. Commonly, the word was used to describe the cleansing of a leper's house. The word hyssop was used to sprinkle, it was used to sprinkle the blood in the rite of the purification. Leviticus 14.52 Hyssop was the agent that used to spread the blood of the Passover lamb on the lintels and the doorpost of the household uh, in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 22. And so we see here that purging or purifying, unsinning, the, un, the, to be cleaned from uncleanness happens through a sacrifice. You know, the leprosy or the lepers could only be purified uh, after the spread shedding of blood. And so even if they were physically clean, they still had to go and make a sacrifice. And so we have the leprosy of sin. And the only way to remove the leprosy of sin is to be sprinkled with the blood of a Passover lamb. And that Passover lamb is none other than Jesus Christ. David then says, wash me. Here's the result of the cleansing. I need to be like a white garment. I need to be whiter than snow. Isaiah 1.18, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. He needs a deep cleaning. Make me here join gladness. Verse 8. He not only wants to be clean, he wants his communion to be restored. See, that, that's what we need. We need to be restored. 
Again, a sacrifice has to be made, though. And Christ has made that sacrifice. Each and every time we sin, we've got to go to God and repent and claim that blood of Jesus Christ. Again, it's not that we're being saved again, but we need to claim that blood that has washed us and purified us so that our communion with God can be restored, so that we can rejoice once again. Then he uses a metaphor here of being broken or crushed, his bones being crushed in verse 8. This, this is conviction. David has been shattered but those same bones that were broken have now been set and will rejoice because God has cleansed him and restored him to communion. Continuing in verse 9, David asked God to take, away, take his face away from sin. Stop looking at my sin, Lord. Uh, stop looking at my sin. And then David says, remove my sin from my face. I don't want to see my sin anymore either. Now, David has been pleading for forgiveness. Notice the words. We've got blot out, wash, cleanse, purify, again, wash, hide your face. The repetition of all of these phrases de uh, de um, describes for us the depths of David's grief. How much do you and I grieve over sin? Oh, Lord, forgive me for this. And boom, we move on. But yet, there, there's, that, that, it's almost trite. Were you really sincere about it? Were you, were you serious? Or were you just saying it just so, okay, you know, I did my thing, I check it off, and I'm good to go? There's got to be some time of grieving over our sin. David now prays for a recreation. Create in me. Now, it's interesting, the word create here, bara, is the same word used in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created. David wants to become something new. And that's what we happens to us. Listen, we become what? New creatures. And every time we sin, guess what? We're marring that new creation. And God has to remove that damage. He has to remove that mar, that, 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 that scar. And he has to continue doing the process of recreating. Then he calls for a steadfast spirit. That's talking about the seat of his emotions. He's asking not only for a new heart, but a new spirit. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus that he had to be born from above. He needed a new heart. He needed a new spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. Speaking of the spirit, verse 11 to 12, we see the spirit restored. You see the Spirit restored. Create me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Do not cast me away. He wants to be in God's presence. He doesn't want to forsake that relationship that he had with God. He doesn't want God to see his sin. He does want him just to see him. Helpless, contrite, repentant. He understands that if he is cast from God's presence, he's going to suffer spiritual death. He's going to be separated from God. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, obviously, this isn't the human spirit. This is indeed the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so David says, don't take your spirit from me. When he was anointed the king of Israel, 1 Samuel 16, 13 tells us, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him from that day forward. Hey, listen, it was the Spirit who was convicting David of sin. But it's also the Spirit of God that brings assurance and comfort. Now, you know, here's the difference between us and David. 
David was fearful because of his, after he came to the realization of his sin and acknowledged it and confessed it, repenting and forsaking it. Hey, wait a minute. I don't want to lose the Holy Spirit. I have to understand the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not permanently indwell believers because the sacrifice of Christ had not yet been completed. So every time a believer sinned, they were cutting themselves off from the Holy Spirit. And in the case of Saul, the, Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit left Saul and never came back. And David knew that. David didn't want to experience that same situation. Now for us, we have the benefit and blessing of, you know, even when we sin, the Holy Spirit still, uh, still abides within us because of the sacrificial death of Christ. But nonetheless, he's grieved. He's quenched. There's consequences. And so like David, we need the Lord... Don't cut us off from the Holy Spirit. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Now salvation here is the deliverance from the penalty and power of sin. Restore me to me that joy. Listen, the joy is the gift, not our salvation. It's God's salvation. The gift that we enjoy is the joy of God's salvation. You know, so many times we talk about, oh, I'm so thankful for my salvation. Show me in Scripture where it's your salvation. No, Scripture testifies to the fact that it's God's salvation. He has done the work. What we're gifted with is eternal life. We're gifted with joy. We're gifted with mercy. We're gifted with grace. But it's ultimately God's gift. It's God's salvation to us. God does the saving. God does the delivering. God does the defeating. You know, this is what Jesus referred to in John 16, 22. Your hearts will rejoice. And then he continues in verse 12, sustain me with a willing spirit. Again, this is not the Holy Spirit here, but his internal spirit. In other words, give me a willing spirit. Give me a, a spirit that is inclined to do the Lord's bidding. Verse 13 to 14, service is possible. We have service possible now. You know, when, when you sin, your, your opportunity to serve the Lord is, is diminished, if not even uh, uh, set aside. But once we repent, service is possible. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. You know, out of the joy of worship, out of David promises, now I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will be converted. Again, he's now walking in God's ways. He's restored back to service. And then what he wants to do here is teach sinners how to what? How to repent. And that's really what Psalm 51 is, isn't it? It's David teaching others, hey, this is what I sin, this is how I sin, this is how I got right with God, and you can do the same. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. That word blood guiltiness there in verse 14 uh, refers to uh, blood that was violently shed. It's referring to Uriah's murder. Again, he's once again requesting freedom from his sin. And notice he addresses it to God of, uh, of my salvation, as if we were reminding God of his grace. God, you're the one that saved me. To paraphrase the thought, be true to who you are. Be my Savior, O God, deliver me. And now we come to the end of the psalm, beginning in verse 14 through 19. Salvation complete. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, other I would give it. 
You are not pleased with burnt offering, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But by, by your favor do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. The young, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. David is going to open loud his mouth, almost trumpet, if you will, uh, God's righteousness as his curse is lifted. But he understands that God has to work within him. Grace forgives us, and that, and you know, when grace is working in you, it will evoke a response of praise. Praise for God's work. Not praise about how wonderful you are, or praise about how, uh, how you've done this or that, but what God has done. Now, what is, the Lord, what is David offering the Lord? Now, Israel was taught by God not to come empty-handed. When you come, you don't come empty-handed when you come into the Lord's presence. You were to bring an offering. Well, David here uh, says that uh, uh, he talks about the sacrifice. Now, this word sacrifice here in verse 16 refers to a blood sacrifice, something that is slaughtered. We also have the word burnt offering, which refers to the slaughtered animal being consumed by fire when it's offered to the Lord. But these offerings are not what God wants because God wants what? David. Now, let's just pause here for a moment because so many people take this verse and lift it out of context and see, oh, see right there? That means God wasn't interested in, in animal sacrifice. That's not what it says. If you're holding to that position and using this text, you are doing a disservice at the least to scripture because you haven't read the whole context did you read what followed in verse 18 and 19 then you will delight in righteous sacrifices then you will delight in burnt offerings then you will delight in whole burnt offerings so what happened why wasn't David or why wasn't God delighting in the sacrifices but here's the key Whatever your sacrifice may be, whether it was the sacrifice of animals here in the Old Testament, and by the way, there are going to be sacrifices offered, animal sacrifices in the Millennial Kingdom. Well, how can that be, Pastor? I thought they were done away. No, they haven't been done away. The only sacrifice that's been done away, per se, and that's only because it was fulfilled completely in Christ, is the Day of Atonement sacrifice. We no longer need an atonement for sin because Christ is has died and shed his blood once for all time. But read through Zechariah, read through Isaiah, you're going to see that in the millennial kingdom and beyond, people are going to have to bring animal sacrifices for other reasons to the temple in Jerusalem. Now right now we don't make animal sacrifices because to do it requires the Levitical priesthood, which we don't have, it requires the temple, which there isn't one, and it requires, uh, the, uh, requires uh, to be in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, those three things aren't available, so therefore the sacrifices cannot be completed. But the day is coming when we go into the Millennial Kingdom when those sacrifices will resume. Now, again, coming back to what the text said here, God doesn't delight in those things. Right away there's people that will take that verse and say, oh, see right there, God did away with all that. Well, again, you're not reading all of Scripture. You're picking the verses you want to make them fit your preconceived notion. Again, look at the whole context. He's not pleased. Why? He's not pleased with any sacrifice or burnt offering that is simply offered as a ritual. 
Listen, folks, when, when you come into God's presence, you bring some kind of an offering, whether it's an offering of your money, whether it's an offering of your time, whether it's an offering of your gifts, whatever you're offering to the Lord, your life, your lips, etc. If you're just doing it to go through the motions, God isn't pleased with it. It has to be done out of a heart that is right with God. And what does a right heart look like? A right heart is one that is broken and contrite. It is one that is broken and contrite. Notice that's what he said. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God will not despair. So before we offer to God any kind of sacrifice with our life, with our lips, with whatever God has given us, guess what? You've got to have a right heart attitude. If you're in sin and think, well, I'm going to go and just give this to God, that's going to appease him. I get news for it. It's not. God is not going to be appeased with your offerings until your heart is made right. And so David prays not only for himself, but for Israel. He's a broken leader with leading broken people. He's been restored. Now he prays for the people to be restored. He prays for worship, not only for himself, but for the people that will come from a renewed right heart. And then God will be pleased with the sacrifices of the righteous. Father God in heaven, Lord, we confess that we, like David, are sinners. And Father, like David, we often ignore our sins. We brush them under the carpet. We push them to the back of our mind. We don't think about them. And then that prophet comes along and says, you are the man or you are the woman. Many times that prophet is simply the Holy Spirit that indwells us. And Father, I pray when we come to the realization of our sin that we would follow David's example, that we would confess it and forsake it, that we would own it, that we would grieve over it, that we would confess it to you first and foremost because ultimately we just didn't sin against others, we sinned against you. Father, I pray that in our brokenness we would cry out for healing. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would give us a spirit that is willing and ready to submit and to follow your teaching. I pray, Lord, that the law that is written upon our heart, the spirit that indwells us and our great high priest that prays daily for us, that, Lord, as we have those three, uh, two persons and one uh, thing, in our lives, that, Father, it will keep us from sin. That, Lord, we will make ourselves, make our hearts soft to receive your word and soft to hear, soft ears to hear what your Spirit and what our Savior has to say. Keep us from sin. But, Father, if we have sin, I pray that you bring us to repentance. Be merciful. Be gracious. Cleanse us. Purify us. Purge us. Make us unsin. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.